Hi, I'm Ken Sagendorf. And I'm Edgar Papke. Welcome to True Alignment. We are live in the Gronowski Innovation Incubator in the Innovation Center at the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. And Johnny, where, where do you live nowadays? St. Petersburg, Florida. St. Petersburg, Florida. And Edgar? Oh, Edgar? I live there in August. <laughs> in, in Louisville, <laughs> hey, I'm Colorado. From Louisiana, so it's, I'm from Louisiana, so it's, uh, it's hot no matter where I go. So this at least there's a little bit of a breeze, right? Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Ken, take us away. <laughs> So, so obviously for our listeners, we have a guest today. Yeah, if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all, as always, info at truealignment.com. Uh, please go ahead and share your questions, thoughts, anything at all during it. And you'll also be able to follow up on the podcast with, with uh, some notes and uh, some references that come out of our conversation today. Yeah, so we're, um, as, as Edgar readies uh, Johnny's bio to introduce him, um, we're going to welcome uh Johnny Say, um, and he's coming uh, from his work work uh, co-working space there in St. Petersburg, uh, right in front of a sign that says, I woke up like this, in case we wanted to uh, <laughs> get the Instagram camera out there. Yep. It's a great, it's a really great modeling you got, you got going, especially those beautiful tropical leaves behind you. Um, so a little bit about Johnny. I, I've known him for uh, several years now. He's a really, really good guy. And if you want to think about somebody with uh, an incredible high level of expertise and design thinking and leading people towards innovation, it's, it's John. Um, so a little bit about his background. He's been a, journal, a journalist, a vodka salesman. Uh, and, uh, and what he does now is he helps organizations uncover their creative superpowers and, and really build and, and be engaged in building what's next. Uh, expert in design thinking, facilitation, prototyping. He's guided airlines, energy companies, not-for-profits and startups and um, early stage companies to develop marketing campaigns, mobile applications, biodegradable plastics, and uh, even wedding insurance, which is really nice to know. I'm wondering if you bought it for your own upcoming wedding or not. Um, and uh, he runs and co-founded Stale Chips, an innovation agency that helps the Department of Defense problem solve, as well as uh, clients worldwide. Um, also, want to add to this, which uh, which really is intriguing about you, Johnny, is that you're also a former professional soccer player and a midfielder by trade. So, being creative and being uh, innovative and a quick decision maker and problem solving on the pitch. Um, my, my guess is that it really, really uh, it bodes well in, in working with uh, teams and organizations and doing their innovation work. I think your guess is right. I, I think there's other things like life teaches you a lot of lessons. And as you go along, I mean, did I plan to be here? No. Am I enjoying it? Yes. Like I was a middle child. So I think I was always set up to be some kind of negotiator <laughs> because you're caught in between two things. And then my mom founded a children's museum. Uh, so from the time I was five, I was in what was a cotton warehouse in our small town in northern Louisiana. She and her best friend converted into this like experiential learning center for kids under the age of like 12, we'll say. So I grew up there and she built all the exhibits. So they came from her minds. And then I had my dad on the other side who you would not say is creative. He might sleep in a suit if you gave him the opportunity. Um, so having the, the logic uh, and, and the hunger, my dad is extremely curious and loves learning. And my mom also loves learning, but she likes tinkering a lot more. And having those backgrounds while I grew up, uh, as well as exploring the world, kind of led me to the world of innovation one way or another. Uh, obviously, through vodka sales, uh, through falling in love with a Spanish girl, falling out in love with a Spanish girl, ending up in the desert of Spain. And then kind of finding my way to an innovation agency. So you yeah. can wander blindly around, right? Yeah. So so in terms of Spain, is is I know that you have a background in working uh, in Spain. I think it was with IBM. Is mm -hmm. is that how you got your your start in doing design thinking and innovation uh, work? Yeah. So it actually when I when I was in Philadelphia playing on a soccer team and selling vodka. Uh, which is a great combination. I, I guess I you carry samples with you all the time, huh? 
all the time. I had a backpack that had a freezer in it. Uh, it was excessive. But uh, so I, I met this girl and we were serious. So she wanted to do her master's back home. She was from Spain. I Googled uh, master's in English near the city she was looking at. And I applied to the first thing that came up and it was a master's in innovation. Uh, I looked up the town once I got accepted and it looked like a beach. So I went there and then I got there and I had convinced a friend to come with me. And two weeks later, he got there. The problem was it wasn't a beach. It was the desert. So it wasn't close to the beach either. It was like an hour and a half away. And so now That's I'm going him, to this dog. school. Yeah, it was. It looked like like Star Wars, like we were on the moon or a different planet. He was so disappointed. Um, but we, we both got this master's in innovation, and I had the chance to do an internship at a local innovation agency. And it turned out the guy who ran it had five different master's degrees in design. And he had partnered with the head of innovation for El Bulli, the number one restaurant in the world, uh, to try and like build this new process for problem solving. And it was similar to design thinking, but it was much more on breaking everything down to its core values and then using those like Legos to build them up. And we did that for marketing campaigns and it worked. And then we did it for beauty products and it worked. And then eventually it scaled like to where we were helping build buildings and clothing lines and IBM saw that I did that and they wanted me to apply it to uh, to apps and technology. And I I did a phone call to them and uh, the head of HR turned out to be from the same town that I was studying in in Spain. And I had the same Spanish accent, which is this place in Spain is like it's like I went to the Alabama of Spain and learned Spanish from them, uh, which was not the smartest thing to do. So uh, I learned Spanish. I convinced this lady to give me a, an interview and I get there and it's 24 people and everyone has master's degrees or doctorates in computer engineering. And the, the job position was actually for computer engineering. And uh, I talked my way into it and then started running all their workshops. And I think in the first year I did like 250 workshops in the first year. Um, and so I had done obviously like a, a decent amount, maybe like, 50 or 60, but then to go up to 250 uh, on every type of problem, whether it was like, how do we write this contract? You don't really need a workshop there, but they wanted a facilitator, right? But then a lot of the times it was, how do we build this app? How do we build this new website? How do we build the Uber of security? Or how do we track these cars that are inside a building so big that GPS won't ping? So it got very complex in the most fun way because Edgar knows I'm obsessed with solving problems. I don't know why it makes me so happy. And so I got in a space at IBM where I was able to get a ton of reps on a whole bunch of different industries. Yeah. It's so great, Johnny. You know, I, as you, as Edgar did your intro, I was figuring out how we were going to make it through the episode without saying the words Ted Lasso out loud. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, you know, that, wandering, right? I mean, if you drive around Colorado, you're going to, you're bound to see a bumper sticker that says not all who wander are lost. Um, and, 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 and as you describe your mom and, and your dad, that's just a, a kind of wonderful way. I was just at a, a conference in Boston last, last week, and I was working with these, uh, uh, graduate students from, uh, a school in Germany. And they were asking, you know, what do you want from students? And my number one thing, playful curiosity, like mm -hmm. try and explore where problems exist so we can try and have the fun of solving them. Um, but yeah. that, but that gives you, I mean, with that curiosity, it gives you a vision, right? I mean, and this is probably what makes you a great uh, facilitator is it's almost like you can see the meta thing happening as you're in it. And, and I think the mm -hmm. ability to get out, to get out of self and see that meta thing happening, um, Edgar and I have been fortunate to, to facilitate workshops where either I'm in the room and he's on the Zoom or vice versa. And what's nice is as we put people in into breakout conversations, uh, we'll get on the telephone outside of the Zoom and we'll be like, did you see that? Um, and, and I think that's, you know, just something fun about the, uh, the ability to see that much larger thing right while you're in it. I think there's also yeah. this piece of it too, and I'd love to get your take on this as well as what, and build on what Ken just said, uh, the referencing of the idea, you know, to be serious about having fun, because you get a group of engineers, you get a group of people together, 
and to actually break through that idea that, okay, we're going to have fun. Let's get serious about it. What does it look like? How do we even get there? And then to guide a group of people to let go of those inhibitions and fears that that keep them from really igniting their their individual and collective imaginations. Yeah, and I, I think a few skills have served me well that were, I was totally lost. So the bumper sticker was the reverse for me. I didn't know where I was going in life. It just kind of bounced around uh, following what I was the most interested in or what I could learn the most in and was still excited about at the time. But along the way, because I didn't know the language, like when I moved to Brazil, I didn't know Portuguese. So I had to read facial cues. And that's huge in facilitation when you're trying to guide people yeah. through the room and you can quickly know how to react to someone before they even speak. It looks like you're a psychic because you already have the response ready for when they hit you with something negative or a question mark that you can quickly respond to. And that also played to when I, when I actually was on the field in soccer, um, I would go alone to the field with a bag of balls and I would play the game out in my head and I would pass the ball to no one over and over again on the field and imagine how the game would go. And in facilitation, you do the same thing. Or in business, you try and play out the scenarios before they happen so you can try and logically pick the one that makes the most sense at that time. I think those two factors have, have helped me uh, as well as my obsession with serious fun uh, or playing with a purpose, whatever you might want to call it. Uh, what I love is being in a room of people who do not want to be there at the beginning. Say, I'll give a real example a room of linesmen. Linesmen are, um, in Louisiana at least, I don't want to generalize, they're large men with tattoos, hands like baseball gloves, and they risk their lives to fix your power every day. So they're pretty serious dudes. They had their work boots on, and like I said, sleeve tattoos, beards, barely ever wore a button-down shirt, and I'm required to help them build a new product and none of them want to be there. How can we make this fun, engaging, get the information we need out of it and actually come out with something positive on the back end that can be used in business, but also kind of unites them together. And being able to do that just sometimes feels like a, a superpower. And it's silly because it's a process. It's not like it's a superpower. There isn't really magic. It's put the pieces in the right order and it will work. But if you put your heart into it and you know how to cushion in certain areas, it can make it an experience and not just something to get the job done. And that's where that serious play comes back in. Yeah, that's a really powerful point. Um, and I think that when, when at least from, from the work that we get to do, um, the experience that leaders have of moving to a place of um, not just going to the end result and always wanting to push there, but rather to trust in the process. To, to look at it through that lens to say, let's let's trust in the process and unpack this. Let's unfold it. And then, of course, that that's when, when we start thinking about human-centered. That's when the conversations mm -hmm. of the actual customer or user experience of a product or a service or a process, or if you're building an internal system within an organization, that's really when uh, the free flow kind of thinking occurs and that free expression occurs. And, and what I've realized over time is, that the free expression doesn't happen unless people have a sense of having fun in some way and enjoying the experience. And so the establishment of the uh, of the um, of the process, or and, and and sometimes, especially working with a group of leaders, they want to know in advance because they want to be competent. They want predictability, mm -hmm. and so offering them some predictability of process helps to bring them around the corner too. I can have some I can also enjoy that same unpredictability in the work and the ideas that we're creating. Yeah, today's going to be a day of multiple movie references for our listeners here. So, um, <laughs> lucky us, fire so, away, Ken. So, so, um, and we probably got to figure out how to get work the Barbie movie in here, uh, and we can do that in a little bit. Um, You're going to slow with Silence of the Lambs, aren't you? <laughs> Amy and I just went with our neighbors to see a movie uh, that's brand new out called Theater Camp. Um, and, and theater camp is, is the story. It's actually, it's, it's, it's really well done. Um, but it's the story of a woman that's running a, a theater camp in the Adirond in the Adirondack mountains called Adirondacks, A-C-T-S. It's like 
super clever. I mean, that should get you laughing right there. But she has a <laughs> she has a stroke when she's recruiting kids. She's at like a high school production and she has a stroke. And then her son, who's like a, a, a social media vlogger influencer, has to come and run the camp for the summer um, and try and figure out how to, to get it to make money. But all these kids are here and they have these, um, you know, folks that come in to be the theater instructors for the summer. And so they are just interested in running the process. And so the, the kids that are in the camp go in with whomever is the teacher and they just blindly follow the process. And, and we all know that when you're facilitating something, like you need to have the process, but it's so rare that somebody in the room is going to want to be a blind follower of the process. Right, you can yeah, in, trust. You can yeah. intro that once, but the second, third, eighteenth time you use that process, nobody is a blind follower anymore. Um, you know, I know mm-hmm. I often say when I'm doing those kinds of workshops, Johnny, I just need you to be a kindergartner right now and just go with it. Yeah, right. I've heard you say that, and I've seen the looks you get. <laughs> but it's kind of nice though; it pokes at the playful, you know, because I think somehow subconsciously, then people are reminded. Of, of when they worked at that level of imagination without fear and worked that way, which is really a great deal of what it's about. Yeah. Well, the ability yeah, for you... Already... To... Go ahead, John. Go ahead, Ken. I just say the ability for you to do it and then is different from the ability to help somebody else do these things. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because a lot of people can do it naturally, but uh, Johnny, your work and getting other people to learn how to do it... Um, to take that skill set that you've learned and honed over the years and be able to do it for themselves. That's, that's something completely different. Yeah. It's been, it's been a learning curve as well to try and understand the process of like, okay, I have this thing facilitation that I know how to do. I want to give it to you. I know the process took me hundreds of workshops to figure out. Now I'm going to teach it to you in three days. How does that work? And luckily my partner, John had, a similar but completely different experience um, in that he did it inside the Navy and he got hundreds of workshops with people that are highly bureaucratic, terrified of, of losing any opportunity at all. And he had to build the train the trainer process within the Navy. So he built it out, got to test it, got signed on for three years, just working on how to train people to become facilitators. And so he had it pretty well cooked and then I could just add a few more spices. So that helped a lot to, to be able to train 12 people in three days so that they have the internal capacity. And then we obviously have like resources that help them make reference to it. But the next step is even harder because you, okay, you have a handful of people who are capable who do small scale workshops they're getting their feet wet they're, you're still coaching them but what if an organization comes with like say 17,000 people and they say like hey we want to completely change our put our individual capacity problems like how do you scale that big and that's one of the things that hopefully we're running into uh we've gotten asked to do it but obviously until we get a stamp that says do it but we're trying to figure that out right now what does that look like how do you scale from uh, two people in an organization to 200 in a year? Uh, and that's going to be a different kind of journey, right? Like, and what will that impact be? I always try and think like culturally, how many facilitators would you need in an organization for it to completely change the way that people think about problems, not just the facilitators, but everyone around them and everyone they touch. I don't have a concrete number, do y'all? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I think that is a wonderful question. What's the tipping point? What's the tipping point? I think, I think well, what's going what's gonna to happen, well, I can tell you, um, if you look at there's two ways to slice and dice this. One would be to just say, well, when you think about, and this is, has a lot to do with the true alignment system, when you think about people's preferences, you're going to have three three groups of people. Those that are very inclusive, those that want to be the experts, and those that want to serve others. And mm-hmm. in the construct of what you're building, there's two considerations. One is uh, what you know, who are your customers, and what are their expectations. Even more so, is what are the core values of your culture and what the culture does, and what the customer experience is, and how do you align a group and and align your your values and beliefs and your employee experience 
of your facilitators uh, to to the customer's expectation of what it is that and how they operate. So there's there's that piece of it, and then there's also the piece of it that says you look at it like a sales funnel. <laughs> you say <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to talk to a lot of people to get to 200. And the thing is, knowing you, Johnny, I know this much about you because I've seen you work, and you're brilliant at what you do, and you're such your your energy is remarkable, and I think that's that's part of it. So one of the problems you're going to run into is uh, not everybody's going to be you, you can't clone Johnny say. So that's one, and you already know right. that. So to be able to to really understand and build a, a, in a way a not a job description or role definition, but rather a a, um, a typing of what it is that you're looking for, and then build a funnel and begin with that, including then the level of experience that people are going to have to be able to succeed and and probably the level you're going to need them to, or the customer is going to expect. So that's uh, 200 in a year. What you're looking at is is pretty, it's a pretty heavy load. And Johnny, I think that's such a good question. You know, what's, what's that, that tipping point? Uh, You know, we know from the innovation by design work that, the companies that are most innovative and, and succeed because of their innovation have processes in place for problem solving, conflict management, et cetera. And so I, I think the question is not how do we get enough people to facilitate? I think the question is when does it become part of the culture so that anybody can facilitate because we know the process? The DNA, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And and I yeah, think yeah I think you're yeah I think you're you're absolutely hitting the mark on that one, and I want to add something to it because uh, in the innovation by design study, uh, one of the things about having uh, clear processes is that there's a consistency through the entire organization, so that from the moment people come into it, they understand here's what it looks like here, you know, and and then you can tie that as part of the definition of success for someone in their role or the work that they're doing. That's great. That makes me feel smart because that both of the things you both said are the things that we integrated into our plan. So uh, we're heading in the right direction. It was like the process is teach a handful of people how to facilitate a little thing, just a little thing. But in that little thing, we spread it wide so we can find low hanging fruit, simple problems that would be valuable for the organization to solve then that in turn gets more people to believe. And we have a little way of making those people into semi-facilitators and then building it into a schoolhouse. Anyways, this is real shop talk. Yeah. So I don't know who your listeners are or how nerdy they are, um, but that's real. It was good to get. Well, there's a piece of this too. There's a piece of this too I'll add to it. And that is what's the expectation of your client? Um, because in most organizations, uh, what we find is organizations have a have a propensity, a desire to go after the low hanging fruit, and so at some level, shifting that and building the building the trust quickly, so you can get at the right problems to be solved. That's always the key to success. At least it is for us. And using that language a lot, and I think this is good for any leader, any leader that's working with a team needs to continuously question when people are problem solving or designing uh, solutions or innovations, always keep asking the question, always solving the right problem because it's such such a wonderful draw and it's so attractive and appetizing to go after the low hanging fruit. It is. Yeah. It's a feel good, like you said. Well, you guys both have that soccer background, right? I mean, this is um, this is how soccer, right? I mean, we, we do these one we do these drills over and over and over that have a high degree of success built in. Once you figure them out, um, that's a, that's the proverbial low hanging fruit right there. Um, and then we, you know, we drop you into a game. <laughs> yeah, think how many times did Japan, Japan's uh, women's soccer team at the world cup, how many times they, they uh, actually just choreography did the choreography and that drill, of getting those getting those forwards to make make the runs that they do and just that slotted ball behind the defense. I mean that's just and you know they'll have four chances they'll have four chances in the match to do it and and three out of four they'll finish. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, talk about deep cuts. I mean if uh, our viewers know about deep into facilitation, they'll surely know 
every player on the Japanese women's <laughs> national team as well. <laughs> I, I have but, to, I'll give a, I have to give a shout out to one of our listeners named Tom Jenkins. Um, Tom sent me an email this morning and he said, you know, I was listening, um, to one of your podcasts and you asked, um, I don't even remember what the question was. Uh, he said it was something along the lines of, um, you know, what's the, if, if AI, if AI was like the modern version of the cold war, what would it look like? And he put this in the chat GPT and came up with like five answers and sent it back to me, which ones he liked. Um, and so Johnny, listen, our, our listeners are all over the place. Um, there's, there's some wisdom. They might yeah. know the names of the people on the Japanese soccer team. I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I don't, there's no doubt here from, from my end. Oh yeah, John, I got to thank you again for that, that piece that you sent me and uh, doing the search in the, in the chat uh, for the uh, uh, top, oh, yeah, five, yeah. top five books on innovation management and innovation by design came up. So thanks for that, it, it, sending that to us. It genuinely did. I didn't. I didn't make that up, and I don't know who you paid to get there. But uh, <laughs> give me the contact information after this podcast. Well, uh, obviously, yeah, we don't make enough money from books to pay anybody for that kind of work. <laughs> well, Johnny, you... on the topic, go ahead. On the topic of innovation management, I've been seeing so many things pop up. So m most of our clients are in the DOD, and I guess it's the hot topic now: innovation. We could say the government is a few years behind in general. Uh, not their fault. They move slow. It's designed to do that, right? Uh, they're our friends. Um, but they're all getting into software platforms for managing innovation. And I saw someone today post about it on LinkedIn and said, no matter what you do, an innovation management system software won't make you innovative. And they compared it to, you know, you give someone a tool, doesn't mean they know how to use it. Even if it's a chainsaw and it's meant to cut wood, it doesn't mean the person you hand it to is going to be great at cutting wood. In fact, it might be dangerous for them. So with you two, as you do the work that we do, like, do you see a future where there's a system that like is a click of the button and it helps people figure out these complex problems or are people always going to be people and need people? So, um, <laughs> we got to come back to business is always human to human. We're always going to need people. The tool is only as good as its user and, and, and Johnny an innovation, this is my opinion, an innovation management system or tool will be awesome. If you give somebody the openness, right? Because the input that goes into the system I mean, this was always one of my skill sets when I worked at the university. I came in as an all-university professor. So I wandered in and out of all of these meetings, and I met all of these people, and I knew what was going on. So if you have a person like that that works in your organization and you give them a tool to manage innovation because they're already aware, have the relationships, or finding that out, the tool will work really well. If you're making that a thing that they use in addition to the other things they do at the organization and expecting that they have the interpersonal relationships to know really where the innovations are happening, it's not going to work all that well. And I think there's something in that too, that relational piece. So someone say like in the context that you describe of knowing the people around them and seeing that, that the always human aspect of it, because it always comes to that. I think this idea of having some kind of a platform that guides you through the process of, of innovation is one thing. Um, how much information and data can you feed into it that really becomes useful? That becomes a question. And I think at the end of the day, so much of what great innovation work is, this really simplifies it for me. And the facilitation process that you engage in is really discovering the truth. It's an exploration of what is real. And, I, and that's one of the issues that you're going to run into with, with technology is how much of it is really real and applicable to what it is that we're trying to do here. And unless we have that human piece of it where we understand um, you've got the objective reality and subjective reality. And, you know, it's always the subjective and, and the emotional quality that really makes things happen. At the end of the day, it's that want and desire to create something new that's going to make it work regardless of what the platform is. So I think that, mm -hmm. that piece of it then becomes so important. So I agree with you on that one, Ken. Yeah. How right. about you, John? What do you, what do you think about it? Well, so I brought it up for a variety of reasons. And I, I think I'm a, 
aligns with, with most of what you both say. I think there can be tools organized in a process that's extremely useful uh, and with su supported with the right resources. Anyone could follow the path to creating something great. They have to be given the time to do that. And I think that's usually where companies don't even worry about it. I mean, everywhere in the world, it's like you do your job. Having an idea isn't part of your job. Um, so I think that kind of slows a lot of places down. I just, it sounds exciting. It sounds fun because I love, I love the idea myself of like when I build a workshop, I'm trying to build something that's self-driving, that I don't need to be there. I'm there for little moments, but it would work if I was there or not. That's how I build things. And I like to think there could be a system that worked that way, but I don't think it's there yet. And I, and I think it disconnects people from people. And that will always be a blocker to what you call truth or opportunity for, for improvement. Yeah, there's something else in that, though, John, um, which I, I think is worth considering. And uh, my intention isn't to disagree with you. It's to build on the thought. Is that's, and your experience of it is because very often the facilitator winds up taking a role of leadership within the group. And, and uh, so there's also that piece of it that says, yeah, it'd be great if they could do it on their own. But doesn't the leader then have to have some idea of what leading in the, in the innovation and design realm looks like, what it looks like in that environment? Well, isn't, I because mean, not. so and, and that has a great deal to do with why the facilitator yeah. gets hired, because they can't do it themselves or they can't get to a place of realizing what's possible as opposed to what their own, what, what their own um, preferences are. I would offer that, Johnny, your, your, your point there and Edgar, your last point, um, there, there, that's the identification of why innovation is often flat for, for, for many organizations is, is there not, it's leaderless, it's overarching expected and leaderless and, 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 and then, you know, the idea of when, when you're in that facilitation mode and, and Johnny, you want somebody to just take it and run with it. I mean, that is the most awesome thing, right? You put people in small groups and they just go and you just sit and watch. Um, uh, you know, Edgar and I love this when we're facilitating together. Um, and I, again, we'll bring up our friend Bree, you know, she always wants to know what we're going to do. And like, we have the first question, but after that, it depends. It depends on what you do. We'll have, we'll, now, we'll determine she asks, what we she, do. Last time she asked, she says, no, no, stop, stop right there. I know what the answer is. It depends. But uh, Johnny, yeah, I, ha I have, I have a question for you. So, um, you know, this, so you talked about uh, going after, you know, this large organization looking for the tipping point with these kind of um, smaller problems so people can grasp and see some success. You know, for me, one of the things I love about our work in True Alignment is the complex nature of the problem. So even though mm -hmm. we can see the pieces, like it's tied and tangled with, with other things, right? I mean, you're not at work all the time. You're personal. Everything is personal. So you're bringing that in all the time. And that's, that's a moving target often. Um, but this new construct coming out in, in the European countries, Asian countries are taking... Uh, I think the European countries more than the Asian countries, but they're taking this this on way more than the U.S. This construct of uh, open innovation. Uh, you asked about platforms and tools, so um, you know those yeah. are really tangled problems. And then, and then people are looking for tools to manage. And I, you know, I think, and I was uh, talking with a co that collection of uh, students from that German university, and they were asking, "How do you manage open innovation?" And I was like, oh, what a great question, right? I, I mean, and they're like, tell us, they were, they were executive MBA students coming from all different sectors, and they were asking, like, you know, you guys are the smart people in these universities. Tell us. Tell us how we would manage open innovation. And I was like, good luck. Um, you know, I think that's a really tough question. Um, you know, and I, I had all kinds of foundational things. You know, really, what is an organization's willingness to be open? Um, with their data, with their technology, um, with somebody else framing the problems that they're asking to be solved. And, and, you know, first I said, if you want to manage it, you're going to have to identify where this comfort is, or it's going to be a, a heavy lift. Um, yeah. Identifying what the meaning of openness is and the, uh, 
the threshold or how far that you can push those those boundaries and those and those limits out there. Yeah. So what's your question for Johnny? I want to know his thoughts on open innovation. Um, uh, you know, as you get a, an oh. increasingly tangled problem, <laughs> like a lot of people are building open innovation platforms. So your, your question earlier about, do yeah. you believe a platform? A lot of people are building those open innovation management platforms. Um, and I would say the more tangled the problem, the more difficult this is going to be. The other thing I share with the students, like in, in the U.S., innovation, Bell Labs. Um, I'm trying to think that if you came back and you said, now I have an innovation management tool for you, Bell Labs, if they would have had any degree of the success that they had. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, my understanding of it was that uh, Bell definitely pushed people very hard and, uh, and, and stressed them to a degree. I've heard that's the same reason that there's so much innovation in the U.S. as opposed to other countries of similar population and wealth is because for some reason there's the chaos factor that we have these wild cards that do amazing things. Another thing I heard is the block where the most LSD was taken in the U S is in San Francisco. That same block is where AI, the AI that we're dealing with right now was invented the same exact block. So it's like, I'm not saying that the drugs caused it, but, the, the chaos that goes along with it and the creativity of, of being able to do things that in other countries are frowned upon or not even possible, uh, I guess that freedom provides a lot of flexibility. It brings us crazy, crazy stuff, good and bad. And, and I think that's maybe a part of it. And when you, talk, you said you were talking to German students, Germans love processes. They thrive on it. That's why design thinking exploded over there and Hasso Plattner Institute does so well over there um, is because they thrive on processes culturally and creativity wasn't exactly scientifically in the past it has been but that's because it's very clear process but in general it wasn't like they were the most creative people in the world and now there's apps and it, there's a new Silicon Valley in Berlin because it's boomed from that that process and so I can see why they would want a process with open innovation, I feel like if you have a cool problem to solve, people will help you solve it and they'll play with your tools. Otherwise, I, I mean, I don't know. I definitely think you need some frameworks or some rails. If you just gave someone a blank canvas and said, paint me the most beautiful picture in the world, uh, it might not be your favorite thing. But if you gave them a little more description about what your favorite thing in the world was, it might look a lot more like the thing that you want. I think you know. I think that's what probably sets uh, sets uh, people uh, in a direction moving away from wanting to do design thinking, is uh, because it's so open. So this comes back to my definition of what does open mean, and um, we use a design thinking process where step one is to set some intention for what it is you're trying to create or at least have a sense of how it aligns to the purpose of the organization and its purpose and how it aligns to a, a, a kind of customer experience and what we're trying to offer and use that as a, as a means to cut that. And I do think that for an organization or a company doing that work, that's one thing. And that could be defined differently than what open innovation may be uh, where you're uh, just throwing pieces out and you pose a question at, like at Lego and people go into the Lego lab and play. And, and I notice there's still an intention there and there's a, there's a purpose uh, that's clear and it's understood by everyone that's engaging. So I think that that piece of it, I think is important. Um, and I'm just gonna get back to the process piece again because I think it's so so important to recognize that um, uh, the process isn't intended to tell people what the outcome looks like. The process mm -hmm. tend them to explore what the possibility for the outcome is. Fundamental understanding right important. there, right? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And so many times organizations go in with, you know, here's a construct of what we think is going to work or not. And then they don't, then they're not open to, to getting what they get from their design processes. I, you know, I've turned down uh, a bunch of opportunities to facilitate design thinking with, with organizations because they, <laughs> they already know the answer. Uh, you know, that's the, you know, <laughs> you're just like, it's the wrong process. It's, you're not yeah. supposed to do it for that. Yeah. Like you so can let me ask better widget perhaps, but you're, 
you can't, if you're looking to get someplace design thinking, there's better processes for what they're trying to do often. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's innovation theater. I've, I've been a, uh, a main star in many innovation theaters, not on purpose, but just because of the situations that I found myself in where people bring you in to make people feel good and feel like they're being creative with no actual plans of following through on anything you create. And, and what I've seen is if you give people hope and then you don't follow through, it makes the culture so much worse. And I had a date that I read in some book and I couldn't, can't make the reference, but it said, after you talk to people, after you talk to your customers and you co-create something, you have a 90 day time frame to give them updates on it and make it look like you're moving or you lose their trust. And I like that number. I think it's arbitrary, but it makes me intentionally always remember to reconnect with the people that helped me solve the problem and try and make sure there's follow through. Cause I don't want to let anyone down, you know? I, I have to I, go ahead, Edgar. I just know that here, at least uh, in this country, so much of the leadership conversation is about accountability and, uh, it's amazing when it comes to situations like that, how often the accountability actually is from getting nudged from the out, from outside the company, not inside. I think that's a really good point of the role that you may have if you're doing design work. And I think the same thing needs to be then true for people that are inside companies as design experts, as design facilitators, that they're aware of that necessity and not be afraid ask people, you know, things are, if, if anything's happening, if things are on track, if, if there is in fact now a plan and a process to engage and actually create what's, what, what's been designed and to iterate and make that happen and have that, uh, we talk about different kinds of flywheels. I think the primary flywheel of any great company is the flywheel of innovation, of design. That, that's the, that's the nutcracker right there. If you can do that, then you got it made. Well, to that, my nutcracker? well, to that flywheel, to, <laughs> that, chef. to that flywheel component, um, Johnny, your question about an innovation management uh, software system, um, this might be the metric that you would use to see right away if it's going to be a good tool based on what you just said. See if there's a button that sends out automatic communications about the updates of innovation. <laughs> yeah right. yeah you know something fun we can build it right now yeah and i think it's a wonderful piece too and, and this is a great reminder a lot of times organizations will kind of build that you know here's here's the, the depository for everything that's going on and then they don't they don't make they don't have any effort in it going back out and so uh you know that that whole idea is like and then, of course, somebody says something and the defensive uh, response is typically uh, the uh, response of, well, they know where it is. They should be accessing it. That's part of their job. Well, oh, no. I don't know if they're busy from their day to day. Uh, you've got to create the space and create the attention to the to the innovative process and that constant yeah. you know, action and the iteration and, and the prototyping that takes place. So we have this running joke, Johnny, that we're going to mention a product on air often enough that the company is going to listen to the podcast and automatically like send us or pay us to be their spokespeople. Um, and so I hope that Microsoft is not listening right now uh, because to your <laughs> point, Edgar, SharePoint sucks, right? If you build me a, another freaking SharePoint page where I have to, I have to spend my time to go find the information and, and often interpret it for myself to do something. That's a, that's a book. That's a digital bookshelf, digital closet. Like, you know, somebody Microsoft saying, okay, Ken, so one of you smart ass is a true alignment. Come up with that for us. And <laughs> we can say we know Johnny. Us. That's it's how it not, works. Okay, here's what you have to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a guy once come to me and he was innovation manager for like a, a sizable company. And he was like, um, the leadership is pushing me. We have a backlog of 300 ideas and they want to know the top 10. And he was like, these ideas are maybe from the past 10 years. I don't know who came up with them or how they got created, but we have to test these ideas and, and get a top 10. And the whole time I just thought, like, why would you start there? Like, maybe there are some good ideas in there, granted, but you would know that pretty quickly 
reading them. If they were that great, how would they sit there for years? And if they are that great and we do the work we need to understanding the problem and meeting with people, we'll probably come back to the same problem that that solution solved and create something newer and more updated. But so many times leadership, even in government, outside of government, is the one pushing innovation down without just with the name innovation and expecting something to pop out on the other ends, not knowing the process or not willing to be flexible enough to actually give people space to create something new. Well, and that's an intentional, yeah, right, Johnny? I mean, and you got to have the intention to do it. I, you know, as you're sitting there in a, in a co-working space, um, we work a lot of these accelerators best intentions. Let's put all these companies together. Um, and then in the hallway, they're going to have magical conversations that comes up with a new innovation in, in the industry, right? I mean, that that was the end of the intention. It was to put them in the same place, right? And oh, they're not, they're not meeting each other on the stairway enough. We'll have happy hours. Um, you know? <laughs> I, uh, I have to tell you this story. A company was uh, uh, wanting to create greater collaboration so they could uh, innovate and uh, so what they did is they took uh, two floors of a giant uh, office building and they took down all the walls and uh, they took down all, everybody had individual offices and they took them all down and they put up the cubicles and they were low cubicles. So people could actually just like see each other and talk to each other if they wanted to. And uh, so I show up and I'm led to the conference room, which is glass enclosed at one end of these, uh, one, of, uh, one of the floors. And, uh, and uh, so we're talking about the culture of the organization and, and looking at it. And they said, yeah, one of the things we did is we increased collaboration. We took down all the walls and everything. So I said, well, let's all get up and walk over to the door. And we opened up the door and I said, so what do you hear? And all you heard was everybody typing with their heads down. <laughs> they said, so uh, and a lot of collaboration. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, what, what went wrong with this? And, uh, and so that led to a wonderful conversation about leadership and levels of communication and how teams and structures around teaming were designed. So we go back to this design process of really what's the right problem that needed to be solved. It wasn't taking down the walls. It really had to do with leadership's uh, role modeling and reinforcement of communication in a way that was different than it had been, which is not an easy thing to do. I'll tell you what, for those leaders, it was easier to spend a lot of money tearing down walls. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about Zoom? Zoom just uh, is bringing all their workers back in. It's just a great, obviously, from a press perspective, that's such an easy thing to poke at because they are remote collaboration and they are forcing people to go back. Let's say forcing. It's it's work. It's a place to work. It's forcing seems strong, but obviously they are a remote collaboration tool. What If you were to predict the cultural impact of what would happen. Do you think they'll just keep rolling? Do you think they'll lose people? Do you think they'll keep being what they're being? Yes. Like yes to all of those path. things. Right. I mean, I think they'll, yeah. they'll keep going and they'll keep growing and they'll lose people. Um, right. I mean, and this is the, you know, this podcast was born out of the great resignation because people are just not seeing themselves in the work anymore. Um, and I think the questions of, of trust and, Edgar and I, we've, we've talked about this on the air before, you know, Johnny, I did a workshop with an insurance company and they said we doubled bottom line revenue with remote workers, but everybody needs to come back. And you're, you know, I mean, this is organizations really, they have to have a better answer than because I said so. Mm -hmm. um, if, well, it, you know, my mom told me that a lot of times and it worked out. So Maybe that's how a lot of people think the 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 people in the middle <laughs> who, oh, yeah, who will show up. I, and I think is that's so important. I'm going to go back to the the idea of the great alignment and that people don't see themselves in the work in the way they did, did before. And there's this, this increasing. It's almost like we're starting to see a, a build up to some kind of tsunami that's going to hit us around uh, around uh, awareness. Uh, where people are just making decisions that align better to who they want to be and what and they want things to look like. And um, and I think that's important because one of the models that we're that comes out of way back in the 1800s, this idea of, of pedagogy and how we teach people. And then that, of course, led led into and integrated with the uh, 
uh, you know, scientific management and uh, where you see people as dogs in the wheel and to move things forward. And, and it's a different way of working. And that's really much like pedagogies with still teach, we're still treating adults like children. Industrial age. Treating, and yeah. you've probably came across that when you were uh, in your role as professor at Loyola. You see that and, and then you, you start thinking about, well, what does andragogy or adult learning really look like? And awareness is about understanding your desire, your need. And so how do you treat people in a way that you connect them to their true being? And because we all know that that's where great work and great effort comes from and, and great innovation and creative thinking. And how do we move people to that space? And I think that's the thing. So when you said, well, my mother said, because I said so, I, that's great as a, when you're a child. Like, you know, when your mother says that to you now, what do you think to yourself? Right? Uh, I'm in trouble if I don't do what she says. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is, yeah, which is also a problem in organizations when people think that way. Yeah, right? true, true. And you said something there, like we teach adults a certain way. And I always wonder, like, are we just teaching kids too much like adults? Like in this like structured format where people grow up and they never really taught like the basic skills of problem solving or creative thinking so that That's when they're real. an adult, they're, they're trapped. And I met with an organization down here called the Innovation Foundation. We're going to name drop. Uh, ARC Investment is a big investment firm that invests in early tech and had this leader named Kathy Wood. And uh, anyways, she started the nonprofit and they just are trying to teach in our county, surrounding counties, problem solving as a skill set. So I was trying to piggyback on it, right? Of course I was, because I thought it would be fun. And uh, I met with the head of it, and he told me to drop off a book in, at their office, and I go in, and I have a book that look, my our book comes in a, a bag that looks like chips, right? So it looks like I'm holding a bag of chips, and they have all kinds of security, and I press the button with the video camera, and I can see the lady at her desk and I can see her here and I can see her at her desk. She's like, Hey, who are you? And I was like, I'm here to drop this off for the guy's name. She's like, Oh, we don't know that guy. We don't have that guy here. And I was like, really? His text, he sent it to me right here. Like I can show you his number. She's like, no, we, I don't know that guy. Like he's heads of the innovation foundation. Like you probably know him. Uh, he said your name was Beth and her eyes were like, Whoa, her name was Beth. Um, and so she finally lets me in and get the book. But, uh, I just thought that was a funny side story, but <laughs> the mission that the Innovation Foundation has is a really cool one, and it re it's reflected in plenty of organizations. I saw another one in North Carolina that has an innovation bus they drive from school to school, and it's trying to teach kids to learn by doing, by finding their own way, and so much of the time, and it's not teacher's fault, and teachers are incredible. My mom was a teacher and is a teacher, um, but it's so hard to teach when everything's so structured and like kids are meant to run around and be crazy. Well, and, and I don't know. I, I think it's, I think, I think you're seeing a loop that developed over time, Johnny. I think um, that structure around teaching and in school and being strict to the to curriculum and the design of it. I think that uh, that actually is, is pervasive in business. So I'm not sure which one came first. I think it may have been mm -hmm. that you played a lot. And then business decided that kids, we got to prepare our kids differently to get them ready for society in the way that we do. And that loops on, uh, loops on out. And then that, that influence at, uh, in organizations and in corporate, in corporate society finds its way into the schools. And now the idea being, well, yeah. And we know this based on our research that the number one factor that CEOs of companies point to as the barrier to innovation is a lack of problem solving skill and process. So it's kind of like now we've got to untangle it again. And that's a tough one because that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage, a lot of resilience and a lot of creative thinking on behalf of, of organizational leaders to actually see that. So you can do it at the school level. Does that mean when people come into organizations that that's kind of like, you know, take it out of them again. Uh, it, it'd be wonderful to see that transition happen like it did. But we're talking about unwinding three or 400 years of, of, uh, of behavior in society. Hey, you know, um, I'm a dreamer. Uh, Johnny, you need to 
come up with a little problem solving video. So we should have on our, on our show notes, a link to, um, to, to Johnny's company, stale chips and, and buying the book that comes in the potato chip bag, which is really, really clever marketing. I um, mean, you even say on your website that this is expensive. Um, and I, and I, <laughs> I very much appreciate that part, but, and I don't know if we can find a video of John and his co-founder, John Hawley, um, doing the your meetings are stale chips uh, bits with the bags of stale chips because I think that is <laughs> that is just uh, worthy of a of a watch. Um, Johnny, you want to market problem solving TikTok. Put it on TikTok. Um, I, and I think that this is the we have to embrace that that learning happens mm-hmm. in both formal and informal settings. And informality can miss the mark sometimes. I mean I think that's what you're saying, right? I mean kids just need to run around. Um, Listen, one of the things I am cooking up in, in my mind here for the Innovation Center is let's do a very public starting of a business. Let's come and find a tangled problem and then ferret out what problem actually needs a solution from the community input. And then let's, let's try and build a business around it that we can hand off to somebody else in the community. And so the students get this. It is, we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> it is open-ended. We're going to have to do a lot of listening. I mean, it is design thinking at its core. It is, you're going to have to Mm -hmm. figure out what it is. You're going to have to put it in the market to figure out if somebody will spend their money and change their behaviors with it. Um, And then, and then you can teach some management principles of how you can grow this, how you can systematize it, how you can scale a marketing funnel. Like we can teach all parts of business through a model like that. But I I mean, I would argue... That that is, and I'm a big fan of the I'm a big fan of the non-traditional schools, the unschool down there in New Zealand, which I just I just love the model that she's doing at the MBA level. Seth Godin does some wonderful things with the Alt MBA. Scott Galloway's Section Four now Section. Um, you know they all have pluses and minuses of them, but I think we ought to not run from those alternatives. People are flocking to those alternatives because we're not doing them in the formal settings, mm-hmm. and so. You know, I think those are, we got to pay attention to that, that return. And Edgar, groundswell, crowdsourcing is the only way you will change that. It's not going to be an individual decides to change it. I agree. Uh, we, we, one of the two aspects of that, and we like to say this a lot, is formality gets in the way of the truth and it gets in the way of creativity. It's in the way of imagination so often, formality does. Yeah. And that's where yeah. you draw that fine line, Johnny, between you know, is there a process or are we trying to systematize a way of thinking, a way of being? And uh, and I think innovation and design is a way of being. And the process mm-hmm. gives us some foundational work. Really, it's everything human that happens over that that actually makes it work. So this is yeah. where the Barbie movie reference comes in right here, right? I mean, and I don't know <laughs> if either one of you have seen it. If you haven't, Jim? No, not yet. Go see the Barbie movie, right? It is phenomenally done funny right it's so, funny. so many sub stories in that but you know in the in the barbie world and then you know as she comes in and out uh and returns back uh to the real world and back and forth um it is this question of formality edgar right i mean she she goes into the real world and finds a, a large collection of white men that are managing the toy company and building the barbies um and so in that formality they have lost the sense of really what was going on. And, and, and um, Rhea Perlman comes in as the, as playing the character who really invented the Barbies named after her daughter, Barbara, um, and really returns the audience to what the Barbies were created for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's actually really, really well done. Greta Gerwig deserves, she's, she's going to get some kind of award and she deserves them all. I sent Edgar a video. I went and saw it the other night and, it was after my fiance had had a long day and she worked till like nine and we went and saw the movie at nine thirty. And I, while I am young, uh, if you put me in a recliner past 9 PM, I'm going to have a tough time. And so like halfway through the movie, it's like Liz was crying because it was something that like connected with her that happened in the Barbie movie. And she's filming it because uh, she turns the camera and then there's me and my mouth is wide open and I am out cold. And it just makes me look like not the person who bought her tickets because she had a long day and surprised her, 
but someone who thought the movie was so boring because it didn't relate to me uh, that I fell asleep. No, I thought I thought it was funny. It was entertaining for sure. Um, and I get married. Probably, yeah, still getting married. Still getting married. Uh, so, hey, no John, worries there. So Johnny, I've got something for you because we're uh, we're going to be short on time now. It's time to start thinking yeah. about wrapping up the conversation. Before we do, I have one last question for you. For anyone that wants to get into the world of design thinking, the world of really just, I mean, just kick-ass innovation work, uh, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them? Hmm. One piece, one piece. You know, the first day I heard the word design thinking, and granted, it was in Spanish, so I learned everything in Spanish first. But Dimas came to us and he said, you have two days to learn everything possible about design thinking and come back and on one page, explain it to me. And in that exercise, I learned the process. I learned great examples. And then I learned a whole page of questions I had to ask him. And so I would say, make that page. You have LinkedIn, find mentors and ask him those questions. And that would be my way of learning it because it's so about you and learning, finding your skill set and finding it in a way that'll work for you. That if I told you what I did, it might not apply to you. And there's no one place, no one source of truth. There's not the fountain of youth in one location, right? It's uh, plenty of places, plenty of sources. Um, but if you really want the best source, go to stalechips.com. We have an online <laughs> course that's incredible. <laughs> nice. Nah, well, done. well done. That I'm was well kidding. done. I, uh, I tried to drop my book like you told me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Johnny say is open innovation actually. All right. I mean, I think that that's wonderful advice, right? I mean, don't, don't close the walls, open them up as wide as possible. Yeah. I I heard something that goes a step further than that. That great design is inquiry. It begins with curiosity. It begins with inquiry and listening. It's not walking in with a solution. It's, it's walking in with, with the questions. And I think that's a really great, uh, a start for you is that you don't walk in with a one page you're on, here's design thinking and everything I read, rather, here's my set of questions about what you want me to learn, which is just, uh, and that's like you, Johnny. Good, to, yeah, well done. Yeah. Okay, Thank so you. I am gonna remind everyone, this is Johnny Say from Stale Chips. Uh, what's your uh, What's your uh, uh, website address? It's stalechips.com, and I'm Johnny Say on every social media. I'm one of, of, of two in the world, my dad being the other one, and he's not really into the socials, so <laughs> I've got him covered. Um, but, yeah, you can follow me there. I'm about to embark on a new quest of 100 validated business ideas in 100 days. So that'll be starting on Sunday. I'm going to try and figure out how to use AI for some things and then good processes for others to build cool business ideas and uh, under 90 minutes from the idea till I actually validate the idea with customers. I don't know. Something to tinker with. You know, I love building. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds like a great project. I, I, I'm going to look forward to hearing about the outcome. I know. Nice. I, and Johnny, I'm probably going to invite you to talk to my class because I think that's the, the validation part is the hardest thing, right? I mean, they come in with a problem for them you can put a business around anything if you want to push product or service onto people. Um, mm -hmm. Right. I mean, a lot of the ways we teach entrepreneurship, the old school way is take two things that don't belong together mash them together. Um, Swiffer. It's not a broom. It's not a mop. You got both. Um, it's not good at either, but it's, you got both. Uh, right. I mean, but, but a lot of innovation is done that way. Right. Yeah. And a lot of entrepreneurial innovation is done that way, especially. And, you know, we're trying to teach a model of find a customer problem that needs a solution. And there's a business there as opposed to come up with an idea and try and sell it. So. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll we'll be in touch. I'll share my mural to the world soon with the whole process. So uh, yeah. and Johnny hopefully is it's a, a learning one. Johnny is a mural savant. Yeah. Yeah, it can't be not, uh, for you at least. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to remind everyone, uh, first and foremost, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Um, any and all questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all, uh, feel free to uh, send us a note at uh, info at truealignment.org.
Tom. As always, will we respond as quickly as possible to to your inquiries? And uh, and with that, I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. Yep, live and a lot. I'm Edgar Papke. Have a great I'm day. I'm Edgar Papke as well. <laughs> <laughs> live a line, everyone. Thanks. Live a line.